This is Zion Hebraic Congregation with me, Luke Tanner. This week's Shabbat message is by my dad, Warren Tanner, entitled, Please Take Care of Us, from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7 and 8. And uh, you can find all of our Shabbat messages wherever you get your podcasts, as well as on our website, ZionHebraicCongregation.com. You can also read all my dad's weekly essays that he writes, uh, and you can subscribe to them if you put your email in the little email subscribe box. And as always, our theme music is by my buddy Evan Shaw. His website, um, EvanShawMusic.com. Enjoy. Mighty warriors arise, yeah. Freedom does lie only away. The soon is the day when we see your face on the mount of your grace and zeal. Alright, so today we're at First Samuel. We're going to be looking at verses, uh, chapters 7 and 8. Um, and as I was saying, uh, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. There's something in the message that I, I have as a side note, and I didn't do it specifically for that reason, but talking about peace in Israel and peace of Jerusalem from the passage of Scripture we're going to look at. Now, here's, here's what I, more than even presenting a message what I hope to convey always when I preach is the fact that the Bible has an answer, instructions for every aspect of our life. And I'm going to say things categorically, but don't take it that I mean it that way. But I just want to say it in a general way. I, I think based on my observations, that God's people have, this is a very broad statement, gotten away from looking first to the Bible to find out how we are to think, decide, act, what direction to take in our lives. You know, I've said a million times, I think, Ranger Andy in that television program I watched every day after school because his theme song was, you'll find it in the Bible which I didn't even know what a Bible was at the time, but that has stuck with me since, what, grammar school, watching him live on TV after school for so many years. He'd sing, you'll find it in the Bible, with his, dressed up as a ranger with his banjo. And that instilled something in me that I didn't know God instilled in me, is this book has the answer to everything. And this book helps us to be able to look at the circumstances, look at our world, interpret what's going on, and then to know how to maneuver ourselves through it while we live in it. But the only way we can know that is we have to be in this book. And coming to it not like, okay, I'm going to have devotions today, I only have so much time, but to really set apart a time in your life, like I learned from George Mueller, like he did, he went to bed at 10, he got up at 4, and he had tons to do with the children's homes. But he centered his whole life around 4 o'clock in the morning when he got up to meet with God. And that just changed my life. And I was just saved a year or so when I found that book. 
and read about this man's life that I didn't even know who he was. But I learned, you know what? Life doesn't revolve around family. Life doesn't revolve around work. Life doesn't revolve around play. Life doesn't revolve around ministry. Life revolves around meeting with God in this book. And until it becomes that, it's just going to be words on a page. Even though we're saved and we know it's more than that. So, I say all that because as I was reading 1 Samuel 7 and 8, which I've read a gazillion times, as probably many of you have, I'm seeing stuff I never saw before that I felt for me was relevant to the times we're living in right now. And so what I unexpectedly saw, and what I'm going to try to convey is what I'm going to tell you in a little bit. All right, so I've entitled this, Please Take Care of Us. Please Take Care of Us. All right, so I don't know if you get my blog or saw the blog I just put out. I was thinking about reading it, but I won't. Um, but it has to do with 1 Samuel chapter 7, uh, accountability before God. And that's out of the first uh, six verses or so um, in 1 Samuel 7. And out of that, I just for somehow got this idea of keeping myself accountable to God on a regular basis. Well, how do I do that? And I kind of talk about what Samuel laid out for the people to stay accountable before God in relation to how far they had strayed and now that they're coming back. I thought, cool, you know, and so for me it just it just ripped me into one about, you know, keeping accountable before God on a daily basis, coming to him and saying, All right, God, come on, do the work in me that needs to be done. I need it. Help me to be accountable to you. So I won't read that, but that's the name of the blog from this passage of scripture. All right. What I want to do is try to give just brief overview to get us to where we are in chapter 7. So, and this is very brief and condensed. So, in chapter 5, the Philistines have captured the ark in battle. They take it home. God topples Dagon, the Philistines' god. Remember, he, he falls, finally falls over and he, he just gets broken. And so God topples Dagon, the Philistines' god. This is a back story of where we're going to go. All right, so, so God plagues the Philistines and kills a lot of them. That's just very brief as to what happens. So uh, they, they capture the ark in battle. They take it home. They put it in the house of their god, Dagon. And now they have two gods sitting there. Well, God's not going to put up with that. So he topples Dagon. And so they come back and say, well, you know, they find him there in the morning and say, well, gee, somehow he fell over. Well, they find, it happens again. They finally figure out, uh-oh, we're in trouble. And then God starts to really just bring a lot of hurt to them and kills uh, some of them. All right, so then you get into chapter 6. So the Philistines wise up and they say, hey, something's going on here. They send the ark back into the land of Israel to Beth Shemesh. In chapter 6, verse 19, some men of Beth Shemesh look into the ark and God kills them and others. So God's just wiping out people all over the place here. You know, it just seems like he doesn't tolerate messing around with his inner presence and what represents him. All right, so uh, in chapter 7, 
Beth Shemeth sends the ark away to Kirjath-Jerim. It ends up at the house of Abinadab. Abinadab's son, Eliezer, is charged with keeping the ark. The ark stays in Beth Shemeth. Chapter 7, verse 2 tells us about 20 years. But I found a good note in my Morris Study Bible that said this. It says, The ark stayed in Beth Shemeth through Samuel, the 40-year reign of Saul, in at least eight years into David's reign. The 20 years mentioned in chapter 7, they say, probably represent the time until Samuel called the people together at Mizpah, followed by their repentance and subsequent victory over the Philistines. And that, that takes place in chapter 7. So, this is an incredible thing to follow the journey of this ark. <laughs> And what God does, and, and He brings this plague, and some think, with the, because it mentions mice, that it was, I can't ever say this word, the bubonic. I want to say blue bonnet. Everything's better with blue bonnet on it. And you don't know about butter. I cannot get out bubonic plague. Did I mess it up? So, so, a plague. God brings a plague. If that's even what it was. I thought, interesting. See, do we stop to think, and this is just me, you don't have to, but do we stop to think this virus, this thing that's plaguing us now, which is to me, I won't even get into that. <laughs> but if there is, or if there was such a thing, could God be using that? Could it be a part of His purpose and plan? Well, if you believe God is sovereign, Nothing goes unnoticed. And just in reading the Scriptures, you see how God sends spirits to impregnant people to do His will, lost or saved. So God can use lost people. God can use saved people. God can use healthy situations. God can use illness and devastation to carry out His will. So, a bunch of people die. Alright, I don't want to beat that to death. Now, in chapter 7... In, in verse 3 and verse 4, it's very interesting, then we're going to get more into it, but it's interesting that it talks about how God's people were involved with strange gods, also involved with Balaam and Ashtaroth. So these strange gods, it could be just like a, a, a generic term, but there's, they're involved in this stuff they shouldn't be involved in, this pagan idolatry and worship. So much so they're, they're following into the worship of Baal and Ashtaroth. Now, I have a note that I want to read to you if you're not familiar with who those two people are or who those two um, idols are. i got a note here in my Bible. If I can find it. Judges 2. Um, I can never find what I want to find. I need to find it. Judges 2. Only Joshua. Yeah, I do. Coffee? I'm just being an idiot. All right, so Judges 2. So so the problem that Israel finds himself at in this time is they're, they're following these foreign gods, these pagan images and pagan idolatry. And it comes under the category of Baal, Baal, and Ashtaroth. So, 
so who are these? So this, my Bible had a good note on this back in Judges. Baal, so what I want you to gather into your head is to see the depravity, the immorality and disgrace that these people willingly gave themselves over to who knows better, who knows better. All right, so Baal was the chief deity of ancient Canaan. His exploits and licentious worship practices are well documented in the literature of ancient Ugarit, U-G-A-R-I-T. The son of El, E-L, Baal, was both a heroic form as a storm god and a fertility deity who was worshipped in many cult centers under various forms and emphasis, hence Baalim, I am, plural of Baal. Ashtaroth, known also from the literature of the Ugarit and of Phoenicia, was a goddess of erotic love and war. She was known elsewhere in the ancient Near East as Ishtar or Astarte, A-S-T-A-R-T-E. The veneration of this goddess entered the Mediterranean world under the name of Ashtart, and the practices associated with her cult became associated with the Greek goddess of love, Aphrodite. She was called a targetist at Ashkelon. The Canaanite worship rites were carried out not only in temples, but on every high hill and under every green tree. These rites were accompanied by such things as frenzied dances, cult prostitution, both male and female, and at times even human sacrifice. Israel's attraction to the debased fertility rites and idolatrous worship practices, as well as the loathsome lifestyle of Canaan, was to be a long one, despite repeated divine warnings and chastisements. So this isn't just they decided to go worship at the First Methodist Church down the street instead of going to the First Baptist Church or the First Messianic Church. It's, it's not just like, oh yeah, we're going to become Methodists now, you know, we've been Presbyterians, well, we'll try even try Episcopalians. It's not even remotely close to that. If it was even that good, it would be good. This was, what they did was bad, all right? So, this is God's people. So, as I said in my blog, when I read about things like this, I don't say automatically, oh, that's them. I'm not as bad as they are. I would never do that. I read and say... I, I, it appears that God tells us in His Word, His people stumble with the same thing over and over and over and over and over in every generation. And you get to the New Testament, and Paul's having to deal with the same thing. James is having to deal with the same thing. Peter's having to deal with the same thing. Jesus had to deal with the same thing. We cyclically are just a mess. And, 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 and that may be too harsh. But that kind of happens because we still have that flesh that resides within us. Would to God when he had saved us just removed all of that. It's like, what the heck was he thinking? He knew what he was doing because he needed to leave, I'm going to put it this way, just an element of that in us to humble us. Because we would become probably overly self-righteous and nobody would want to have anything to do with us. But God took out, when I got saved, he took out a ton. I mean, the moment I got saved in the 73 at age 19, it's like, whoa! I, just like, all this stuff just fell away. But there's like two or three things left that it's like, come on, God. 
I, I don't understand why these are still here. 40 plus years later, I'm wondering, God, why are they still here? And then my daughter, whom I was talking to you about in Arizona, she gives me a book on extravagant grace to read. I thought it was, it's a great book. I got the title. It's like, this is going to be sloppy Christian grace crap again. I don't want to read this. But I said, well, my daughter gave it to me, so I read it. And it was phenomenal, at least for me. And she opened up enough in the author to say, God leaves these things providentially and sovereignly because he knew he had to keep us humble and it keeps us coming back to him. And so when I read about these people, I don't excuse myself and say, well, I'm never going to worship Baal. Well, I do stuff that may be just as equally bad, if not worse, but, you know, it's not categorized as such. So, they're involved in a lot of stuff that's just not good. And so Samuel basically calls them back to accountability before God. And so that's where I found myself when I read this. So everything I'm going to say is not... I just say, oh boy, this will be a good message. I'm going to let them have it. It was, oh man, this is beating me to death. And I just happened to be here and it's time to preach, which I didn't realize until Thursday, I think it was, that Luke wasn't going to be back. So I said, like, oh, okay, I happen to be here. I'm not going to scramble, try to come up with anything else. So God, what's here? I don't want to blame God, but that's kind of what I did. All right, so... What I want us to do is, and I'm not going to try to be long on this, Um, we're going to read through 7 and 8, and I'm going to try to read just a few verses and then talk about it. All right, so here we are, Judges 7. Uh, Where am I? What's that? 1 Samuel 7. Yeah, I'm in Judges. Thank you. 1 Samuel 7. If if I've been saying the wrong book, I'm sorry. It's what happens when I get cross-references I have to look at. All right, so 1 Samuel 7. All right, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. And the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eliezer his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass while the ark abode in Kirjath-Jerim that the time was long, for it was twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then remember I read you my note from Morris, basically saying it could have been like fifty to sixty years it was there. Verse 3. And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then... Put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth, and serve the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel. So, you can read more about that in my blog. But basically, he calls them to accountability. And I think what I see in this is... 
and, and I'm not going to really try to explain it, other than I'm just going to tell you. I think the Israelites had grown used to trusting the false pagan gods to meet their emotional, physical, and spiritual desires. Now, just you're going to have to follow with me in this because you might not see it yet. But they had been living under the influence of Balaam and Ashtaroth. They were worshiping them as gods. What do gods do? Why do they worship the gods? Well, because they believe God will, the gods will take care of them, will give them food, will bless them, and they're, they're just, they're false gods, we know that, but also, I, we say they're false, but I think they're just demonic spirits that have co-opted false religion and used it for their nefarious purposes. So these people had bought into this concept of if we worship at these pagan altars, if we have these little miniature idols, oh, which we saw when we uh, saw the, the Jerusalem, what did we go see? The Dead, sea the Dead Sea Scroll things in Boston. I don't know if any of you got to see that. You know, then after you watch the big panoramic 360 thing, you go out to see it. You get to the tribe of Dan because they broke up some of it by locale. You know, in other places, I, I don't know if I was walking around with you or Luke, but it's like, look at all these little idols that they had dug up. Then you get to, I mean, they're just these little things made out of stone or whatever they're made out of. Then you get to the tribe of Dan, and it's like, because remember, they went way up north. It was just like pagan city. These little miniature idolaters, idols that they worshipped. They were just... I don't. I want to say hundreds of them. I could be overblowing it, but if there was fifty that still have survived after all this time through from various parts in Israel, it just documents how permeated they were with uh, per, how, how much has permeated their life. This this idolatry. So anyway, I, I I say that what I said. They came to trust these idols to provide for them to take care of them, and don't you know Satan will do that. Of course he will. He wants you to worship fake gods because they're him. And he will give you what you want, even if it's not good for you, because he wants you and wants to draw you away from God. And so we have to guard against that. All right, so then let's read, starting at verse 7, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel gathered together to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering, holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. I just think that's so neat. Here they are, taking the time to, to worship God and to do this. I know what I'd be thinking. Samuel, they're right over there. Can you hurry up with this? we we got to do some fighting. You know, and so it's just neat. And, and this is how I see it. It's so tender. Samuel's offering up the burnt offering. I'd be over here thinking, they're coming, Samuel. The Philistines drew near to battle against him. But, this is so cool, God interceded. The Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines. 
and discomfited them, and they were smitten before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they came under Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they came no more into the coast of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron even unto Gath. And the coast thereof did Israel deliver out of the hand of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Okay, so here's this note I have. I'd better say it now. So, what struck me was, how is Israel trying to get peace now? It's basically peace through appeasement. You know, it's make a deal here, make a deal here, let's concede here, let's concede here. As long as, you know, we keep everybody not attacking us, and as long as we still have a little a sliver of the sliver of the land we already have, which we're not supposed to be giving away, God said, you don't own it, it's mine, I'm just letting you take care of it. Never give it away. We're still giving it away. We're still not, Israel's still not claiming it. And they think it's going to be, we'll have peace through appeasement. Well, I don't see that here. There was peace through aggression. There was peace through war. They went to battle in obedience to God because it's ours. Get out! There's not going to be any peace in Israel. And, and Israel is, and I love it, it's our land. It's my land. It's our land. It, we're in Yeshua. It's, we're grafted in. That's our homeland. That's ours. It's, much as the blood Jew says, this is my land, it's my land as well. So I am concerned about the land. I love that land. Right, and I'm not so happy about what's going on over there. But this, there is no peace, because it says here, at the end of 14, and the coast thereof did Israel deliver out of the hand of the Philistines, and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. You know? Anyway, okay, so that's just me. So let's finish. And Samuel judged fifteen. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went from year to year in circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah and judged Israel in all those places. And his return was to Ramah, for there was his house, and there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar unto the Lord. All right. So seven here are my notes on this, uh, verse seven to seventeen. Under Samuel's leadership. They turn to God from idols, and God delivers them. Uh, Go on. And God delivers them. Okay, that's that's it for chapter 7. So, um, under Samuel's leadership, they turn to God from idols, and he delivers them. See, that's pretty good. When I write notes summary like that, it should shorten the time. So there you go. That is chapter 7. All right, now, let's get into chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. And this, this is so fascinating to me. And I can see it, and I can understand it, having been in the ministry, and it's so easy for this to happen. You probably know of preachers that has happened to. You know the stories about preachers, kids, and all that stuff. It's so easy for this to happen. But I was always, and I'm always shocked when I come to this passage read in relation to Samuel. So it says, 8.1, And it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judge over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba. 
and his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside, but turned aside after lucre, and took bribes and perverted judgment. Golly. So you have this guy, mightily used of God, chosen by God, from an early age to serve him, doing a fantastic job, but his kids go to hell in a handbasket. So I had a note, so my Kate King James Study Bible, it says, but like Eli before him, Remember, Eli's sons got killed. They were wicked before the Lord, and he, God killed them. But like Eli before him, and, and maybe to some degree, basically, Eli reared Samuel because he lived there from another age. Like Eli before him, Samuel was too preoccupied with his ministry to properly oversee the spiritual upbringing of his own children. Now, fathers... We are built in such a way that says my responsibility is to do whatever job calling is mine. It's my responsibility to do it to the best of my ability because from that I'm basically the one that's supposed to take care of the family, lead the family, direct the family. What happens with men, I've been there in the ministry, but it also happens with men that own their own businesses, men that have just regular, what we would call professional profession, jobs of profession. When we're young, we have these goals before us which are good and noble and right. To provide for our family, to make sure they have the best of everything. And in doing that, what happens is we get so wrapped up in the ministry, get so wrapped up in our calling, get so wrapped up in our job, all for the right reasons, and I'm not questioning that, we sometimes miss the formative years with our children because we're so busy working, so many hours working, or the worst of the worst is serving God and neglecting family. Uh, neglecting is not even, that's too harsh. Just Forgetting it's kind of also a part of what we're called to do. And that seems to be what happened with Samuel. I mean, he's a circuit rider guy. He's out there. He's gone. He's away from home. He's traveling to these places. He has a big responsibility. I don't know what Mrs. Samuel was doing, but somewhere along the line, something happened, and, and his sons just weren't. So I'm trying to say, let's not risk losing our families while we're trying to do a good thing. Let's try to... And, and the problem is you don't learn it until you, you've actually screwed it up and it's too late to go back and change it, right? That's where the blessing of God's Word is because God's Word teaches, okay, unlike what we do in America, oh, Dad's that old guy. What the heck's he know? He's really out of tune. He doesn't even know how to text. And, and we equate usefulness on a whole lot of other things other than what God says is acquired wisdom that that guy who gets to that age is supposed to have had by being in this book so that he has something to share. You know, what happens is we, we, 
I don't know, it just gets turned around all backwards. Um, and I'm getting off on a tangent here, so I've, I've, I'll just leave all that alone. But, you know, we, we, we need to realize that... Uh, anyway, I'm going to stop. So, anyway, Eli just really kind of messed up that whole thing there with his family. And uh, uh, got busy making a living for his, his family, will guess, or serving God. And, you know, lost his kids and guys who can't do that. We just really can't. Oh, so I know where I was going. So you don't learn it until I forgot where I was. You get learn. You don't learn it until you're so old. Then you, God says, you know, the old guys pass it down to the young guys. Well, that's his pattern. Pattern in America, the young guys saying, "What the heck do you know, Dad?" So God said, you know, by the time you get that age, old guy, you should have some biblical wisdom to implant. And so I'm trying to implant to the younger guys, I guess. <sighs> Let me say it this way. I was talking to one of my sons. Um, and, you know, he was saying, yeah, Dad, I was just talking to a guy about your age. And he says, yeah. You know, like we do from our age. Oh, yeah. When it was, you know, just one family. You know, you could buy a house. You could buy a car. Dad worked. Mom stayed home. And, and the old guy was saying, boy, things have changed a whole lot in your day and age. And I don't even see how you young people, you saying to my son and wife, his wife saying, I don't know how you even survive and make it. And so my son was talking to me about that. And I said, Daniel, you guys have said all the time we were growing up, you didn't, under, you didn't know how we did it. You know, we have five kids. I worked. She stayed home, did homeschool. I did get part-time jobs to help out, which my church gratefully allowed me to do. Um, but, but how do we do it? I said, son, I don't want to say his name, son, this is what your mother and I decided to do. Your mother and I, when we got married, decided that we wanted to have children that we could give over to God. And so we're going to have as many children as God deemed that we should have. How are we going to pay for them and take care of them? I don't know. But I said to my son, unlike today, young people think they have to get a house and buy a house. They have to get brand new cars. They have to have brand new clothes. They have to have the best of the everything and basically start... Right out of the chute, what it took previous generations years to get to. And I said, how do you do it now? The same way we did it. Decide, you know what, we might have to rent. We might not ever own a house. Um, we, we might have to do without. We might have to buy cars that are not brand new. You make it happen. So what I'm trying to say to the fathers is, we cannot get caught up in the mindset. We have to have everything. It has to be the best. And I have to work da 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 to where we get so embroiled in it. Dad has to be gone all the time. If you're there, don't get beat up over it. Just learn from your life now so that you can pass to your kids. Dad tried to do the right thing. I'm trying to do the right thing. I've made some decisions. This is where we are. But as you get your own wisdom gleaned from the Word of God, start passing it down to your children. My goal is, my kids don't, and this is not a saying, my kids don't think I was the best father I could have been. And that is absolutely true. And that's not a slam. But I wasn't the best father that I could. But you know what I say? I looked at my unsaved father and said, hmm, you know what? I, he did a great job in many ways, but I want to be better than he was, whatever better is. I want to be more of what he wasn't. So you know what? I can be measured this way, but if I measure this way, I've 
I am not like what my father was. I am in many ways, in good ways. But I, be, I chose to become more than what he was and drop off a lot of what he should have. So, you know what? Son, look at me and say, hmm, my dad did an okay job, but, you know, he didn't do everything that he could. You know, he could have done X, Y, and Z. Great. Take it and put it on you. And that's what God says to do in his word anyway. Dads are supposed to teach the children. It's not just, oh, I taught them Torah. It's like, hey, son, you know what? To be honest with you, I could have made some better choices along the way here, and I didn't. But God is still God. He's sovereign. He knew I would do it. Who knows what he's going to do in and through you because of how God has worked in my life. So anyway, I'm going way too far now. All right, so. Good stuff, though. Oh, thank you. I always feel like, I, you know, I'm going to get pies thrown at me when I get one like this. <laughs> We're going to take our shoes off and throw them. Yes, I know it. I can feel them coming. All right, so chapter 8 now. Did we? Okay, we read 1 through 3, right? Yes, all right. So let's read, and and I'm almost done. All right, now, let's read 4 through 22. That's going to take us to the end. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah, and said unto him, Behold, Man, you're getting old and you don't have too much longer to live. We've got to come up with a plan here. That's basically what it says. Thou art old and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now, make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. This is just so cool. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hey, just take it easy, Samuel. Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee. But I want you to realize, they've not rejected you, they've rejected me that I should not reign over them. Isn't it interesting? God says, give, give them what they want. My legs fall asleep. Uh, give them what they want. Give them what they want. I, yeah, I, this, before, in case I forget to say, sometimes God gives us what we want, and, and I have a note for it if I can remember to get to it, so that he can teach us that we don't want what we want. And I think, here's, here's where we are with our country right now. I don't mean what I'm going to say, although I mean what I'm going to say. <laughs> I almost wish Biden would become president. Because <laughs> I said at work to one of my liberal friends that we can go back. And, he's actually listened to Dennis Prager. He's not liberal. He's left. And I didn't know there was a distinction between liberal and left. To me, they're all the same. But he's left. And we can go back and forth. We have great arguments to fight one another. It's never personal. But I said, you know what? I hope Biden wins. Because it's all on you now. You think Trump's, and I'm not necessarily the biggest Trump fan either, but I'm glad for him. I said, you think Trump's blowing it? I hope Biden gets it. Then, And this is what I said. Then everything will be fixed. And this look came over his face like, oh, crap. What if Biden does win? <laughs> you know? I almost wish, because if there's hope, if there's hope for America, and I says, I don't think there's any hope. I don't, I don't think there's hope. We're too far into abortion. We're too far into immorality. My own theory, which I've read others afterwards, the last time God could cleanse our land by the shedding of blood in relation to those that shed innocent blood was the Civil War. He'd have to wipe out our country with all the innocent blood we've shed just in abortion in our country and that we spread around the world. There is no hope. But, if there were to be hope, God would have to do a reset, a reboot. And I think the only thing that would 
have a chance of waking up our country is give them what they want. Give them Biden. And once he screws it up beyond screws it up, unless they get him out of there because they want that lady to be president, because, you know, what the heck? Is there anything really behind that mask? I know it moves. You know, I'm almost thinking it's like when the Antichrist comes and there's his image and he, he's a, there's this puppet guy. I don't even know what's going on. Anyway, in that guy's head. So, hearken unto seven. Hearken unto the voice of the people. Give them what they want. Give them what they want. All right, verse 8. According to all the works which they have done, since the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. He, God said, it's, it's just same book, different chapter. Same people, different generation. We've been doing this since the days of Egypt, God's saying. This is not going to change. Nine, now therefore, hearken unto their voice. Howbeit, yet protest solemnly unto them, and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. So this gets into all of what I've been saying to get to. Ten. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. And he said, This shall be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and some shall run before his chariots. Twelve. And he will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties. And will set them to ear, to plow his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his instruments of war, and instruments of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries, and to be cooks, and to be bakers. And he will take your fields, and your vineyards, and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. 15. And he will take a tenth of your seed, and of your vineyards, and give to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your sheep and ye shall be his servants. And ye shall cry out in that day because of your king, which ye shall have chosen you, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, No, we want to be like everybody else. Put a king over us. Why? That we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us, and go out before us, and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto their voice, make them a king. And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, Go home. Go home. Now, when I read that, and I, I may not have my definitions right here, but at least let me, let, let me read what I have here. So, uh, when the people realize Samuel doesn't have too much longer to live, and that his sons aren't like dad, they revert to what they came out of. And I'm, I'm saying specifically the religious worship, where they, they, the pagan worship where they expected their gods to take care of them. Right. They, re, uh, they, uh, they revert to what they came out of. They want someone to take care of them and do everything for them. Equals. They want the government to tell them what to do, how to do it, and when to do it. 
And they are willing to abrogate personal responsibility and freedom just as long as they will be taken care of and given what they want. Welcome to America. What is that? Socialism. Socialism. And it's, it's, it's very interesting because um, verse 14, just the way it says, give them... Uh, uh, 8.14, I'm not going to rehash it. But he says, you're going to take your fields, your vineyards, your olive yards, and give them to his servants. That's just what socialism does. It says, everything's going to be wonderful. We're going to do the best for you. Biden, we want to give you everything. You know, Bernie, crazy Bernie Sanders, we're going to give you everything. You know, well, don't worry. It, it's all going to be there. That's the lie of socialism. Yes, they're building their kingdom for themselves. And so they'll give you what you want, so they say, so that they can take from you to have what they really want. And so verse 14, um, he's going to take the best of them and give them to his servants. Verse 15, he's going to take the tenth of your seed. And what's he going to do with that? He's going to give it to his officers and his servants. Verse 16, he's going to take your men servants, maid servants, the best young men that you have, and he's going to put them to his work. This is so good. 17, he shall take the tenth of your sheep, and ye shall be his servants. He owns you. Government owns you. Now, that's my take on it. You might not see it, that's my take. And why did I say at the beginning of what I said that the Bible has... If we can only see it, things to help us see where we are, wherever we are, because God's Word is relevant for every generation. It's relevant for every generation. And so it's relevant for our generation. And God, for me, I'm just giving me, I read this and I say, whoa, we want a king to rule over us, to take care of us, to give us what we want. But the backstory that they don't tell you is you just signed your life, your children, your land, everything over to us. We'll take care of you. But you're ours. And that's where we are in America and it scares the living daylight out of me. And I would think I was screwy if I didn't listen to somebody like a Dennis Prager who's even more concerned and more scared than I am. So I'm trying to get us to see... Folks, we are to be a... That's why it says, in, I think it was in Ephraim, there were men that had wisdom to discern the times. Men, it's our responsibility to be in this book so that we can discern the times. First off, for our own personal families, to know how you as a family are going to live your life unto God. Remember, as for me and my house, we will serve God. That's your role. That's your responsibility. That's my responsibility. I'm responsible for me and my house before God. However, we then take that structure out into the world. And we as fathers have the responsibility to implant wisdom into our kids so they can grow up and be light and salt even more than we were in, were in our dark world which is only getting darker and darker and darker. And so I don't envy the young kids that we have because they have a task before them if, if things keep going this way that uh, we've not really had to navigate as Americans. We're losing America. The land of the free and the home of the brave is not free anymore and there's nobody brave and standing up and fighting back. So, you know, I have a son that has kids. I'm, well, all my 
children have kids. And I can only hope now that I, didn't, that I gave them more good than my screw-ups were. And that they now can learn from me, who learned from my dad, that they need to be the dad more so that they need to be as a spiritual leader in their house, as the one that gives wisdom and direction from God. Because their kids are growing up in this world that we're in right now, right? So I don't know what, you know, that's, that's my take on what I read here. Do with it what you want. I don't agree or disagree. That's even not the ultimate point. The ultimate point is dad, husband, mom, you have to navigate this world. Where are you going to get your directions? I'm telling you, it's not the Constitution of the United States of America. Forget that. It's shot anyway. We're, we're, we're not citizens of America. We're citizens of heaven. And we lost that. And we have a king and it's God. He's given us his rules that we're to live by, the word of God. And that just settles it. But what, what if I go to jail? You may go to jail, but jail, well, that's what happened to God's people in his word all along. It may get horrible, and it may be hard. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm scared to death as to what's happening in relation to me and some decisions. If you don't take vaccination, do you realize they're already thinking about steps that they're going to do? They're not going to mandate it, but you may not be able to go shopping. You may get work privileges revoked. You can't go to work. And your government subsidies, whatever they are, like me, if I get on Social Security, we'll just not send the checks. It's not mandatory, mind you. You just can't do anything. Okay, I'm, I'm still messing with this mask thing. I have to go to work and wear it. I've been already yelled at by Dave, and he let me have it. I went in there one day, and he's like, Warren, you need a mask. I said, yeah, I'm talking to Karen right here, the boss. I said, Warren, you need a mask. Okay, I'm going Warren, you need a mask now. Okay. Warren, get a mask! And that's what he did. He said, let me have it. I don't want to go ask. Which I purposely don't do until I get in the build normally because they're supposed to give you a mask. And everybody freaks out. No mask, no mask. And uh, then I go get a mask. Where am I going with So I'm, str- I'm struggling with this mask thing. I'm supposed to wear one to drive a bus and blah, 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 blah. Okay. But I'm going to do my best to make it through Walmart and Market Basket and any other place in the world I can without a mask. But vaccination is my line in the sand. I think we have, for me, I have a God-given responsibility to my conscience, and my conscience for me is I am not going to allow somebody to put a foreign substance in my body, which they've already said... It, Probably will only work for about 40% of those that take it. It will only last three to six months. And both Gates and Fauci have said 95% of the population has to take it before it will even be effective. And uh, idiot Gates wants to inoculate the whole world. Seven billion people. I thought he was stupid enough to think he wanted to do the country. He wants the whole world. Folks, there's demonic forces happening here right now. I don't even know if these people know why they're doing what they're doing. I, for me, I tend to think God is doing, orchestrating, getting things laid out, just like he did in the Bible. A spirit would come over that king. He wouldn't know why he was acting like an idiot. Pharaoh didn't know why he was doing what he was doing. God was putting a spirit upon them to do his will, good for good or for bad. So, 
you know, I, I'm I'm a little nervous about this too. What if I can't work? What if you know, blah 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 blah. All of what ifs. Well, where's my answer? Oh, it's the Bible. You know, oh, God will take care and God will bless. Yes, He might. <laughs> but I might go to jail. Might lose my job. Is that God's blessing? We don't define it that way. Well, if God doesn't mean any harm for me as His child, if if he just man, if he dumps money on me and I don't have to worry about it, like Dennis Prager, he can do whatever the heck he wants. If I lose my job, is there a blessing on both sides? We ask. Just we don't define God's blessing biblically anymore. It doesn't mean He takes care of all our problems. It doesn't even mean He doesn't let us die. It just means His blessing is absent from the body, is present with the Lord. However, it ends up, and that's what keeps us loyal to Him and faithful to Him. In the good and the quote unquote bad. So I don't know what's going to happen. Now, I go through this talk with my wife. And like, Me, I, I, Warren, just, it, it might not ever get that bad. You know, let's just wait and see. And there's wisdom in that. But my makeup is okay, I'm going to listen to that, but I have to extrapolate potential so that I at least have a plan potentially that will need to be followed if and when that ever happens. If not, great. All I've lost is a little maybe sleep and anxiety that I wouldn't have had. Um, but folks, we have the Bible, and the Bible gives us the rest of the story, and we know how it ends. We have to get there somehow, some way, somebody. So I take it upon myself to say, "All right, God, what's your word say? Help me." Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Take out of Take out of this, I always feel like I'm, I'm a stumbling block in, in what I try to convey. Just, but this is who and what I am, God. So, Father, remove the chaff of me. May that not be a stumbling block to what you may want to do in the hearts and people that are here. Father, take your word and, and help us to realize you will find it in the Bible. And there's stuff in there that will help us to be like those guys of Ephraim that were men of wisdom that could discern the times. Father, just help us to know how to discern the times, but to, to not get so swallowed up in the morass of what has happened to where we're not effective and, and we kind of shut down. Help us realize the opportunities that are before us to, to shine this light, to be salt, to be your, your living testimony in the midst of this world. Help me and help others as well. We, we, we love you, Father. Thank you for Yeshua. And thank you that we do have that blessed hope before us that one day we will be with him when everything is set right. And we long for that. I sense that. We sense that. We know it's true in our own hearts. So even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Hey. Mighty warriors around